You're listening to City Beat, a partnership between Riverwest Radio and online daily UrbanMilwaukee.com. I'm your host, Jeremy Janine, president and co-founder of Urban Milwaukee. And for this New Year's Day edition, we're joined in studio by my fellow co-founder and Urban Milwaukee publisher, Dave Reed. We'll spend the next half hour discussing the top 10 stories in Urban Milwaukee from 2018. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Explain to the viewers, I guess, or the viewers, the listeners, this is an audio podcast, and thankful for that. How did you come up with, we're each going to do five top stories, how did you come up with yours? Sure, sure. I didn't want to just run down through, you know, what got the most traffic, so I didn't pick these stories based on page views or readership per se. Uh, For the most part, uh, these were the big, long-term stories that sort of came to to finalization this year, uh, with one exception. And what is that one exception? Or are, we, are you going to keep me in suspense for the next half hour? Going to keep you in suspense. All right. And I had the luxury of seeing your list in advance. So I wanted to do, again, not the top traffic stories, but the things I thought you missed. I don't think you were intentionally overlooking them. You you picked some great stories. I think everything on your list I would have picked, but I picked five other things. And I want to lead off with what I think was the, the big story. It definitely wasn't a big traffic mover, except when it initially broke. But it is a story of great consequence for Milwaukee. And that is on January 12th, uh, Mayor Tom Barrett announced the surprise resignation of Health Commissioner Bevan Baker. And this really isn't a single story as much as this event happened January 12th. But a whole series of things came after that. And Barrett said that he accepted uh, Baker's resignation. Read into that what you want, if he was terminated or not. Uh, But Barrett said he learned deeply concerning information regarding one of our key health programs. And that program is the Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program. It's responsible for all of Milwaukee's youth from ages, uh, newborns up to age six. What happens to them in terms of testing their blood levels for the presence of lead, which is a dangerous heavy metal that can cause all sorts of serious health problems. And it turned out in 8,000 cases, the city had no record if they'd notified parents that tested for their children tested positive for elevated blood lead levels. The mayor's office started to launch an investigation into what was going on in the health department to reports directly to the mayor, found that things uh, might even be worse than they seem. And over the next couple of months, and we have a number of stories on this, things just continue to get worse and worse. I think, thankfully, we have a new health commissioner, Jeanette Kowalek, that we're getting kind of to the end of the bad news is ending, the good news is coming. But this was really something that dominated Uh, what I thought was important news in Milwaukee, but not something our readers necessarily clicked on in large droves. There was no pretty picture here in more ways than one. Right, and it's just part of the story, right? I mean, there's the big discussion of lead pipes and uh, lead paint in houses. So I think this is just one piece of the puzzle uh, that we're going to be hearing about for at least the next year or two. Yeah, decades to come, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Dave, what's top on your list? So for me, and uh, I just want to say, you know, November 2nd, 2000, uh, 2018 was a really big day for Milwaukee. Uh, so my first story was the streetcar opens to the public. I mean, Jeremy here first wrote about the streetcar coming to Milwaukee January 22nd, 2009. And if you actually followed the project, the financing and some of the money of it really goes back to the n- early 90s. So this has been a story that's been you know, developing for decades. Uh, there's a 2.1 mile long first phase. It connects from the intermodal through downtown up to the east side. 
Um, the second phase of the streetcar, the hop as it's known, uh, should open in 2020. As Mayor Barrett said, uh, the purpose of this is to bring people and places together. And you can see that happening already. They reported uh, in November there were 75,000 rides. Uh, and the system has actually averaged just under 2,300 rides a day, excluding opening weekend. And out my window, I can tell you, people are still riding it. And, and the projection was for 1,850 rides per day. I right, think. right. And, and yeah, think about it. This is winter. So I would actually expect ridership to do better as the year goes by. Yeah, I, the one thing that interests me is if people will use it to get to the lakefront, clearly the lakefront expansion they will use to get to Summerfest, but that Burns Common stop at the end of Ogden and Prospect, will people realize that if they live in the Third Ward, if they live in Easttown, that's probably the fastest way to get to the lakefront? Yeah, and you know, that's interesting because I've had people say it doesn't go to the lakefront, and we point out, actually, it goes to Burns Commons, which is essentially dropping you at the lakefront. Yeah, you walk down the stairs and you're there. And you're there, right. Uh, so that's a, I don't know, that's a big piece. I could see if I lived in that area... You know, regularly going to the public market, going the other way. So we'll see how it goes. And my second story is one that just happened. December 18th was kind of the latest installment in this. Uh, I don't want to call it a saga because that implies a negative connotation, but the council okays the largest manufacturing deal in the United States. Now, when it's built, it won't be the largest uh, urban manufacturing deal in the United States. But as it's currently proposed, Komatsu Mining's $285 million plan to build what they're calling South Harbor Campus at the eastern end of Greenfield Avenue. It's just a massive proposal that came out of kind of nowhere, I guess. We had, Komatsu came in and bought uh, Joy Global, uh, which most Milwaukeeans know for its brand name P&H. They make large mining equipment, uh, particularly these, these absolutely massive shovels. And that's been happening in suburban West Milwaukee for almost 100 years. And the company immediately started looking for a new headquarters, except that wasn't public. New headquarters, not for all of Komatsu and its couple hundred thousand employees, but for the Komatsu Mining Division, the former Joy Global P&H. The good news for Milwaukeeans is that it's going to be in Milwaukee. Uh, that's good news for everyone in Wisconsin, I think, uh, except for a couple key points on the deal, which is that the state is having to chip in sixty or almost $60 million in tax credits to keep them. That, uh, I think, will be tied into something we talk about later because, you know, certainly a Foxconn story is going to show up on our list. And beyond that, the city will also chip in up to $25 million in incentives for them to create additional jobs. They're going to move 200, or they're going to move 600 jobs initially into the area, but they hope to create 1,300 jobs. Well, the catch there is that they can reap almost $18 million essentially in rebated property taxes just for moving those 600 jobs. They get pretty close to that. They won't get all the $18 million because they have to start increasing the payroll over time. But it's, it's something that we're going to be watching closely in 2019. They don't plan to open until 2021 at the earliest. So it's something that I anticipate we'll be writing about a lot for years to come and will probably be a big story in years to come. But it's quite the tremendous deal for this 60-acre plot that long known as the Solvay Coke site was a kind of a black hole on the waterfront. I think it's a really interesting deal because... A lot of it is moving jobs from, from, from the suburbs. So I think that's a debatable question. Is it, is it worth that much investment? I guess we're going to find out in the end. Um, but wasn't there another piece to that, that project where uh, they're, they're holding property for a potential transit stop? Yes, there's a potential commuter rail line coming where kind of the Union Pacific Railroad, which runs diagonally through there, and the Canadian Pacific Line, which is what most people know is what the Amtrak Hiawatha runs on, that kind of junction right there is a pivotal site for two proposed privately operated commuter rail lines. The city actually negotiated a purchase option so that they could have a station there. Komatsu says they support it. 
you'll have to stay tuned under Milwaukee in 2019 to see actually what's behind the scenes happening with those proposals. All righty. So I'm going to jump in with my, my next story. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier, November 2nd this year was a big day. The other thing that happened, it happened right as, as the hop was uh, about to launch, was the couture, uh, the story we're calling it, was the couture cleared for takeoff. Um, if you're not familiar, the couture is a $122 million, 44-story apartment tower um, that's been uh, being developed by uh, Barrett Visionary since about it was first announced in 2012. So again, this is a long-term story. It's been waiting for years. It had three major hurdles to uh, sort of get past. First, they had a, there was a whole public t trust doctrine issue, whether it was on lake bed or was it able to uh, develop there, and that got cleared up. Uh, after that, there was a sewer pipe that mysteriously arrived that had to, uh, had to be uh, moved, and I think they still need to move that. But the final piece of the puzzle uh, was this HUD guarantee backing up, uh, I think, an $80 million uh, uh, construction, construction loan. loan. Um, and that came through that same day. There's still some last steps that they have to take, is my understanding. Uh, but it was the big, the big announcement that everyone's waiting for as far as that project. And that'll be a game changer, completely changing the, the access to the lakefront and uh, the city skyline. Yeah, I think what interests me in this is not the apartments as much. I mean, that's, that's neat. I'm not going to live in them, though. But the three-story kind of public concourse at the base where this, this project's publicly important because the first streetcar extension down Michigan and Clybourne will actually run through that. The proposed bus, bus rapid transit line will run through that base. But there's also restaurants planned. And then you mentioned it's going to improve access to the lakefront. I'm really excited to see how that bridge and connecting to the potential lakefront gateway plaza park could work where this becomes, you know, this building that you pass through as you tear us down from downtown to actually the lakefront. Yeah, right. And this story is going to continue on. I mean, it's still got to be built. Still waiting on that development, uh, that last piece from the federal government. But then also the lakefront gateway plaza is another piece of that puzzle. And, and we're seeing if the BRT actually gets to the, to the building. So yes, that's, that's something, the couture, we're going to be watching that real closely in 2019. We anticipate reporting on it again in early 2019, likely with a groundbreaking, uh, shifting to something that already had a groundbreaking, something that we've covered extensively for uh, 18 months now. I actually want to dip back to a late 2017 story because it became a dominant narrative in 2018, and that's Murphy's Law. Foxconn subsidy now exceeds $4 billion, and Bruce Murphy, or Milwaukee editor, calculated that by using the approximately $3 billion investment by the state in terms of tax credits, but the number just kept adding up because the village of Mount Pleasant and Racine County agreed to a $764 million TIF. That's designed to support the infrastructure for the project. You can't just bring these 10 or 13,000 manufacturing jobs to Racine County and assume that the existing road network and sewer network and everything like that's going to support them. So that was another expensive cost added to it, $764 million. Then there's a $30 million new road uh, that's outside of the TIF that the state's going to pay for. And then on top of that, uh, there's $134 million for more roads. And if the numbers keep going, I mean, they get smaller after a while, thankfully. But the state's spending something like $7 million to try and attract workers to the state of Wisconsin. Rate payers for We Energies, that is everyone that turns on the light switch in Milwaukee County and much of Wisconsin, is going to have to pay for a new transmission line to the plant, a high-voltage transmission line. Just a massive project, and it became a dominant narrative in Governor Walker's campaign, re-election campaign, that uh, took us the whole way into November. 
Tony Evers, the governor-elect, has indicated not glowing support of the project, but he hasn't said anything about stopping it. So that project's kind of hit the back burner in terms of public perception, but Foxconn is moving forward. Ironically, of all things, we had an urban Milwaukee intern uh, that has now taken a position at Foxconn, so that's good to see that they're actually hiring people. They've purchased property in Eau Claire and Green Bay and um, downtown Milwaukee, so the project's moving forward. If you're in Racine County, you can see it actually under construction. There's now walls going up, so just a, a huge project, and if you find any Foxconn story in urban Milwaukee, this is true of any streetcar story, of any couture story, scroll down to the bottom, you'll have our whole chronological list of everything we've published about it. Yeah, and this one's a really uh, fascinating project. Well, you talked about the $4. billion subsidy. And when you break it down, you know, they sort of promised 13,000 jobs, but the reality might be closer to 3,000 jobs. <clears throat> and when you look at the numbers, even under the ideal world, it's something like $250,000 per job that we'll be uh, essentially paying out as uh, taxpayers. It's going to be a long run to see how this actually plays out. Yeah, is it a benefit it, or not? If it's a winner or a loser, we're not going to know until like 2040 at right. the earliest. When it's supposed to break even, I think. Yes. So, Dave, what's your next story? Well, you mentioned it. Um, <coughs> I picked this one uh, because what you just mentioned, uh, the governor-elect uh, Tony Evers. So my next third story is Murphy's Law, 33 election winners and losers. And to me, the big, obviously, winner of that was Tony Evers. But as Bruce wrote, he said, this was a truly historic election and the perhaps the biggest winner was the American democracy, with a huge turnout of voters, both Democratic and Republican, and a record-setting percent of citizens voting in Wisconsin. So that in itself was a good thing. People going out to vote is important. He, he, in his story, he had a couple of big losers. Uh, he pointed to big money. So Governor Walker had a $50 million to $14 million advantage in campaign donations and outside group spending, uh, and he ended up losing. Uh, other thing, negative ads. Again, Walker's campaign pummeled Evers with countless different negative ads, and he was able to overcome that. And the other loser uh, might have just been uh, Walker's presidential hopes. Uh, obviously, he was thinking of running again, and this uh, should likely be a uh, hurdle for that. Now, on the winner's side, beyond Evers and uh, Mandela Barnes was gerrymandering. Despite the huge turnout and the overwhelming, you know, winning multiple state-wide campaigns, uh, Democrats still did not pick up in the assembly in the Senate. And I think we have to touch on, I, I don't know you said her name, but Senator Tammy Baldwin, who coasted largely to a, I don't want to call it an easy re-election win, but by the final numbers, it sure looked like that. She really outpulled, I mean, the blue wave seemed to be somewhat of a real thing in Wisconsin, but she really, I don't want to say led the ticket, because I think a lot of people were drawn in opposition to Donald Trump, in opposition to Scott Walker. But she absolutely trounced Leah Vukmir, like 60 to 40 when all was said and done. Uh, Bruce had a follow-up story on that or earlier in the year, actually, where he suggested that uh, Republicans had picked the wrong <coughs> person for that seat. Uh, and maybe that just played out because uh, there was the backlash uh, against Donald Trump. All right. Next up for me is a story that I've been covering for years now. I think if you go back to 2010, I wrote about potential sites for the new arena. And ironically, with no insider information, and I don't think it was a twinkle in Mark Lazary and Wes Eden's eyes, they picked that site it just by, I don't want to claim brilliance on my part, but by chance largely because we know the Bucks actually wanted the Journal Sentinel site originally next to Pierre Marquette Park. But where the new arena is along West Juno Avenue, the arena is finished. It's now known as Pfizer Forum. There's a story wrapped into that as well and how the company repeatedly denied they were the naming rights partner. Now they are. The company also says they have no updates on their 
corporate headquarters relocation. They're currently based in Brookfield with nearly a thousand employees. The Bucks claim to be looking for an office tenant. There's a lot of available land there. What's going to happen? It's it's kind of a wait and see game, but I'm expecting that we're going to have news soon, uh, whether it's about Pfizer coming downtown or the Bucks or someone close to the Bucks might leak out what their proposal has been to Pfizer. That's going to be interesting. But really at the center of all of this is the opening of the $524 million arena complex. That happened on August 26th. There was quite the ceremony for it. It was a really hot day outside. And when I say quite the ceremony, it was also quite the lengthy ceremony. It was well over an hour. You had a wide range of speakers from NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, uh, NBA all-time leading scorer and former Buck Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You had current Bucks like Giannis Antetokounmpo there. You had the Bucks owner ownership group led by Wes Edens, Mark Lazary, and Jamie Dynan. You had Jim Paschke, the TV announcer, emceeing it. You had Tom Barrett speaking. You had Council President Ashanti Hamilton speaking. I think the only person that didn't speak was Chris Avely, County Executive and Courtside Season Ticket Holder, and that's purely because he was out of town. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have been invited. Peter Fagan, gave, the Bucks president, gave this really lengthy speech at the end when a lot of people were ready to go, and unfortunately someone even passed out, but it was quite the celebratory event. Uh, they didn't pass out from a speech. They passed out from the heat. I Somebody should passed out? Yes, there was a calls for emergency, you know, medic, and it, it was quite the event. They've probably spoken too long then. Yes, <laughs> it, was, it was going on. You saw, like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was just sweating through his shirt. Uh, which is quite noticeable when you're over seven feet tall standing right. on stage. Right. Uh, it was you know, quite the event. There was no major news broken, but it was really the public's first chance to get inside the building. It was completely free. There was a lot of activity going on around outside the building. It was the first time the building was really open when it was warm. You know, Now, since basketball season started, the Bucks uh, have been playing, and they've been playing really well, but it's been cold outside. So Milwaukee got to embrace the building in the warmth when it was comfortable not to walk around in your winter coat. If you haven't been to the Pfizer Forum yet, whether you love it or hate it, try and find a way to get in there. It is quite a bit better than the Bradley Center. That's an understatement. Even if you're opposed to your tax dollars going to it, they went to it at this point, so you might as well take advantage of something. There's a ridiculous number of events booked there. So in our article from August 26th, Bucks Open Pfizer Forum kind of breaks down everything we had until that point on the arena, including the flip-flopping on who the naming rights partner was going to be. Uh, the Pfizer Forum, it's open for basketball, concerts, and everything else. But there's still work going on over there, right? On the plaza and the uh, live block areas, the Good City is still wrapping up, uh, getting Yeah, we completed. know the, the just after Christmas, Good City had their signage installed, so they're expecting, uh, owner Dan Cott told me months ago that they were hoping to open in January. That seems likely. We now know Drink Wisconsin is going to relocate over there. Uh, we know that there is a nationwide chain bar coming into the space. So it's, it's going to be quite the uh, experience changer at the live block still to come because that's not done. You're right. Yeah, I went over there during the uh, the Brewers playoff run, and it was wonderful to sit outside despite the cold and that huge TV they have in the alley to be able to watch with amongst amongst of uh, fans. Yeah, that's a so. gr- uh, really a truly great. Uh, it's not quite a public space, but it's it's as close to a private public space as we have in this city, and the Bucks have really programmed it well. Right. On that note, tying into the Pfizer Forum, my fourth story here is uh, meet the finalists for the Democratic National Convention. So earlier this year, Milwaukee. Uh, applied uh, to host the 2020 DNC, and originally they were one of eight cities uh, that had made the list, and now we're down to just three, Milwaukee, Houston, and Miami. Uh, the, the economic impact of an event like this is estimated at $200 million, and it sounds to me, from the, some of the reports I've read, it's really down to if Milwaukee can find this $10 million loan guarantee, it'll be coming to that town. 
Yeah, I've heard that from a number of sources. I've also heard that that's been dis- being discussed for since going back to July. So it's interesting to see, like, is that really what's going on? Is there another factor at play? But it's it's something that really could be a, I don't want to call it a game changer. That's way too much. Like, the arena itself is the game changer. But the DNC could really help put Milwaukee on the map. It could be really embolden the public confidence in itself. And it, it seems like really a low-risk thing for the city compared to a lot of other you know, events. There's not a huge public subsidy we're talking about here because the $80 million bid would largely be private funds. So that's good to hear. Right, right. And the, the number of people who come to something like this is between forty and 50,000 uh, attendees. So there would be hotel rooms filled for miles. And uh, the town would be just sort of buzzing, I would think. And I, I know two things, or I guess it's one thing, two sides of the same coin. Right now in December, I would rather be in Houston or Miami come july i would right. rather be in milwaukee over houston and miami where it's going to be miserably well, hot houston would i would think be very miserable in july yeah so this will be something we're watching closely on urban milwaukee uh, we're continuing to talk with people close to the situation trying to you know break a story if we can here or there but the dnc the democratic national convention coming to milwaukee has been a big story this year and my last piece it's it's a bit of a light-hearted take admittedly <laughs> and that is at the uh, an update on the ridiculous process to pick a new uh, flag for Milwaukee or if we even new need a new flag and I no single part of this is ridiculous I guess they're all logical decisions made one after another which when you look at the whole thing uh, looks like a microcosm of how Milwaukee makes decisions although it's hard to find say uh, someone acting in bad faith or anything just the the way the process has gotten to this point and that is in 2016 there was a design contest for a new flag and it was an unofficial design contest although the final selection was held at city hall unveiling of the final um finalist for the flag over a thousand submissions but we had cut it down to five and when it got down to those five the mayor was there council president shanti hamilton there was there they kind of blessed it by their presence and i believe they both spoke at the event but now they've kind of run away from the issue because it's become a bit polarizing and it's it's become a bit polarizing for a couple different reasons one i think there's a contingent of people that just don't want to see the flag change they just you know kind of like the ridiculousness of milwaukee's flag which has been pronounced one of the ugliest flags in the country the 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 ugliest flag in the country yes uh there's another contingent of people and i think they have a very very legitimate concern that the process in 2016 may not have been inclusive enough and what that means is it wasn't translated ever into Spanish or another language. It was done entirely in English. Uh, it was done entirely online. And multiple aldermen now, uh, some of which even were originally supporters of the effort, are saying they're not hearing from their constituents on wanting to change the flag. It's become a, well, these people live near the lake, and they're the kind of elitist Milwaukeeans, and they just fly the new flag. And the rest of the city, all 600,000 of residents of Milwaukee are not necessarily included in this process. And I, I think there are legitimate things there, and I don't, I don't profess to know how to solve them. But the end result of it was, back in November, the Arts Board, after spending a couple months reviewing the process by which the People's Flag was selected, a design by Robert Lenz, uh, they said that, hey, we basically need to restart this. That doesn't mean that the People's Flag winner the, by Robert Lenz can't be the eventual winner, but that there are enough uh, issues with the process in 2016 that led to this that the city should invest in a proper consultant through a request for proposals process and should make sure they do a fully inclusive process to select a new flag my gut tells me after watching this for a number of years and watching the adoption of the people's flag and 
this is the part where Dave and I need to disclose that we own uh, Urban Milwaukee, the store, which sells both existing city flag merchandise, but honestly a lot more people's flag merchandise. My gut tells me that the people's flag that is currently out there will win any new design contest because there's just a large contingency of people that like it. And I think when people really learn what the symbols stand for in the flag, they like it as well. It might win another uh, contest, though. I, didn't they throw out some crazy number that hiring a consultant might cost maybe $100,000? I just have, I know that was just a number tossed out during a meeting, but I have a hard time seeing anyone voting to spend um, significant dollars on picking a new flag when we have so many other pressing things. And part of me is happy, you know, keep it to the people's flag. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. If it whatever happens, it's going to happen in 2019. At this point, Dave, your fifth story. And my final story is the huge Michaels deal gets no direct subsidy. So this uh, is uh, Michaels Corporation's their hundred million dollar plan to build a six acre mixed use development anchored by their utility contractors' new civil infrastructure division. These are high high end engineering jobs coming to Milwaukee. Uh, this dramatically changes this piece of Bayview that. Uh, It'll be unrecognizable for, from the way it was. Um, and this is the former Horny Goat hideaway site. The former Horny Goat site. And, and that brought its own uh, criticism because of the way that building came down uh, without much public discussion. But I think in the end, if people look at this project on its own, it's not getting any direct subsidy. They're bringing you know, good-paying jobs to Milwaukee. This, to me, looks like a long-term win for the city. And this is something, well, we've been close to this project for a long time. And in May, we broke the news after talking to a number of sources and really working uh, our Rolodexes that Michaels was considering a large development for the north end of Bayview. We didn't have any idea quite that it was five buildings and $100 million. We knew it was large. We knew it likely included hotels, apartments, and offices for the firm. When it was actually announced in August, it was even bigger. And at that point, the thought was, that there's going to be a small city subsidy, a, a grant for bringing 250 jobs, a million dollars. Well, that didn't happen in the end. Michaels decided they didn't want that money because of the requirement that they would have to hire a number of unemployed and underemployed city residents for that. Not that they dislike those people, not that they won't do that, but the reporting requirements on that are a bit onerous. And for a million dollars, the bare minimum to uh, trigger that threshold, they decided to pass. So that's something that's interesting, whereas deals like the arena and the Northwestern Mutual Tower, they got a rather large subsidy, but also had to have that requirement and exceeded the hiring requirements. So that was good to see. But this deal, I'm curious, you know, will they will they actually meet the number even though they didn't take the subsidy that requires them to do so? Well, that's interesting. If they'll still do that kind of hiring, do the hiring. Too. Yeah, they have, they have publicly professed they want to do that. And, and one thing you talked about, these being high-paid jobs, one thing Michael said during the approvals process, uh, firm chief legal officer Dave Stegeman, uh, he called, said, quote, these are people that are easier to hire in Milwaukee than elsewhere. Elsewhere is Brownsville, Wisconsin, uh, which is just outside of Fond du Lac. And the firm's competing for, like, civil engineers graduating from Ohio State University, people coming from, you know, the University of Illinois, coming from Minnesota, and they're competing uh, often with people that are getting job offers in multiple places. So they find that it's a competitive advantage to get them into Milwaukee. Uh, for the firm to have that to advertise versus having them in Brownsville, a city of, I think, just under a 1,000 people where the options for a young college graduate might not be as luxurious. Pure entertainment and quality of life issues that they're, they're used to sell to bring the, uh, the employees there. Yeah, and we're expecting this project to break ground sometime in the spring. The company said as soon as they line up the permits, they'll get to work building it. 
Uh, Rinka is the designer on it. I believe uh, Gilbane is going to be the developer. Dave, I want to give you a chance to real quick list your dishonorable mentions. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just had them real quick. There was, um, I'm forgetting the titles, but there was the Wolf Peach uh, fiasco over who caused the closing of the business and the Irish pub's uh, handling of their staff as they went to the new business. 